which is quoted in Acts 4 and applied to the Lord Jesus. So that gives you some sense of the connection to Lord's Day 11 and the name Jesus. There's no author listed on, on top of Psalm 118, but it is the Word of God and it reads as follows. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Now to the New Testament, the book of Acts, page 1160 in the Pew Bible, 1160. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So the apostles have been preaching and speaking to the people in the temple area. 4 verse 1, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. 
But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, earlier they had healed that cripple, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So far then the reading of God's Word. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing Psalm 118, the stanzas 1, 5, and 6. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we move into the second part of the Apostles' Creed, where we confess what the Bible teaches about God the Son and our salvation. You'll notice the heading above Lord's Day 11, God the Son and our redemption. So the Apostles' Creed, we've seen that already, it starts with God the Father, and if you think ahead, it, it concludes with God the Spirit, and in between, in the middle, it deals extensively with God the Son. So, we're going to be spending a fair bit of time digging into the person and work of Jesus Christ all the way from Lord's Days 11 through 19. Jesus stands literally in the middle of the church's confession just as Jesus stands in the center of the Bible itself. Don't get me wrong, we certainly believe in the equality of the persons of the Trinity, and yet it has pleased this triune God to save His people in and through His Son, Jesus, to even elevate the name Jesus above all names and that to the glory of the Father. This is the Father's wish that the Son have a name that's above all names. But isn't it strange then that we don't read about the name Jesus until the Gospel of Matthew? Where was Jesus in the Old Testament? How were Old Testament believers saved if Jesus didn't actually arrive until much later? And can we truly find Jesus busy doing things in the Scriptures of the Old Testament if He wasn't born until after it was written. Well, to help answer these questions, I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. In Jesus alone, my hope is found. In Jesus alone, 
my hope is found. We'll see that Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord, and Jesus is the cornerstone. Well, the catechism here in Lord's Day 11, as well as 12 and 13, slows down the Apostles' Creed, you could say. It zeroes in like a magnifying glass on that name Jesus, and then in Lord's Day 12, the name Christ, then in 13, the name Son, only begotten Son, and Lord. And the church does this. It, it unpacks these names because the Bible tells us these names are significant. There's something important and loaded about each of these names. We first read of the name Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's a well-known text for most of us. It's footnoted there under Lord's Day 11. And you'll know the story. An angel was sent by God to tell Joseph about Mary's coming child. And the angel gave this instruction on God's behalf, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So it was God's idea, it was God's specially chosen name, he impressed it upon Joseph, make sure you call the lad Jesus. Well, when do you suppose God came up with that name? Was it just on the spot, moments before dispatching the angel? Well, that couldn't be, for we know from Lord's Days 9 and 10 that this is just not how God works. God is a planner. God has counseled within Himself from before the creation of the world to adopt a plan for the world. And that plan, out of that plan, He drew a blueprint for everything that would unfold for our creation, for our fall into sin even, and for our redemption. The triune God purposed to save a people for Himself, and how was He planning to do that exactly? Well, Peter the Apostle tells us in his first letter, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, here it comes, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So, the, the plan for our salvation, the salvation of every one of God's people, was crafted before time even began, and in that plan, the sacrificial lamb of God was chosen, was set aside, and the name Jesus was in God's mind in that plan before eternity. What I want you to see, brothers and sisters, is that the name Jesus and the person Jesus and all that He would come and did come to do, it's not just a dot on the line of history, not just a 33-year period. He's not just one person born among countless other people. He's not even just a significant figure who has had a, a huge influence on the history of the world. I mean, all those things are true. Jesus has had an influence on the history of the world like no other human being over the, the course of time. And yet there's much more to this name. 
God's choice to have His Son called Jesus, God's choice of His Son to be the Savior of the world, that very choice set the wheels of history in motion, you see. It drove history before Jesus was born, and it drives history after His birth and after His ascension. It has been God's plan from all eternity to save a people for Himself, to establish a kingdom for Himself here on the earth. And that goal would be accomplished through Jesus. That was always the plan. So we have to pull back the camera and see this for what it is. All of history, all of the world, not just the history that deals with Abram and Israel, but also the history of the Philistines and the Moabites and the Assyrians and the Romans and whoever else was around in the Old Testament time, all of that world history was driven along by the power of God to lead up to the arrival of and the revelation of Jesus. And equally, all of history since His birth, not just the history of the church, but the history of the nations, the Chinese, the Koreans, the Europeans, the North Americans, whoever, all of it is unfolding so that the kingdom of Christ comes more and more until at last the king returns in the clouds and brings that kingdom to its fullness. So Jesus, you could say, Jesus stands as the fulcrum of history. He's that point on which history balances the point on which everything hinges. We worship and we honor and we adore the Son of God who is Lord of history, who is King and Master of all that goes on in this world. He's not just a single man at that single point in history. He's the, the Master of history, the driver of history. So was Jesus then active in the Old Testament? Or was he waiting in the wings, letting his father do his work until the time was ripe for him to be born of the Virgin Mary? Well, we certainly know that the Old Testament prophesies about the coming of Jesus and the sacrifices of the law foreshadow Jesus, but is that all that there is? This special name chosen by God in his ancient plan tells us that Jesus was in fact personally active all throughout history. For Jesus is no one other than Yahweh, the Lord. The Catechism tells us that the name Jesus means Savior. That's right in the question, question 29. But that's more of a summary of what the name implies. The actual name in the, in the Greek version of the, of the Bible or rather, it is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, and that name Joshua means Yahweh saves. So, the angel's announcement to Mary was that the baby was to be named Yahweh saves. That's what you got to call him, Yahweh saves, Jesus. And why, why that name? Was he just another Joshua? like the first whom God had used to deliver His people from the Canaanites? Well, no, this Joshua, son of Mary, is different, for the inspired Matthew goes on to say that this child will be called Emmanuel, which you know means God with us. 
So, on the one hand, this Jesus is absolutely a true human being. He's a son of the Virgin Mary. But on the other hand, he's something more. He is God in the flesh. And now I want to bring this point to the fore. He is Yahweh in the flesh. What do I mean by Yahweh? Well, here's where Psalm 118 can help us. I wonder if you would turn there with me for a moment. Psalm 118, stanza, or verse 1. Verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. And if you look carefully at that name, Lord, you'll see it's in four capital letters. There's a significance to that. That means that behind the English four capital letters is the Hebrew name Yahweh. This is the special name by which God revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush, I am who I am. And you'll know from the Bible that God has several different names. You can think of the names uh, El or El Shaddai or Elohim or Adonai. Well, here is the special name Yahweh. So every time you see Lord in four capital letters, you're reading the name Yahweh. It's one of those funny things with the English translations. It gets covered up, but that's what you need to know. And it's all through this psalm. Yahweh. In fact, it's all through the book of Psalms. It's all through the Old Testament. Yahweh is called upon. Yahweh is addressed over and over again all through the Old Testament time. And this Yahweh, brothers and sisters, is the only true God who came down from heaven to be born of the Virgin Mary. There is, I think, an often among us a disconnect on this point between Yahweh or Lord four caps and Jesus. It seems that when we think of God, the God in the Old Testament time, and we see the name Lord or Yahweh, we think of God the Father. And we tend to think of God the Father only. But is that true? Is Yahweh only God the Father? Can it be true? Is the Father ever without the Son and the Spirit? We more easily think of God, of Jesus, rather, as God in the flesh. We get that from the name Emmanuel. That's more common among us. We know that Jesus was worshipped as God. We know that He is the Son of God. The apostles call Him God, and yet in the Old Testament, the same divine being called Yahweh is just as much called God. So if Jesus is called God and Yahweh is called God, then Jesus and Yahweh have somehow got to be united. I hasten to add that also the Holy Spirit and the Father must also be Yahweh, just as each of them is called God. So what I want to bring to your attention, brothers and sisters, is that in the pages of the Old Testament, Jesus is active. He is Yahweh. When Yahweh acts, Jesus is acting. When Yahweh came to, to Mount Sinai to give the law, Jesus was there. The Son of God was there. The name Jesus came later, but the person of the Son of God was there. 
The Old Testament saints didn't yet grasp or know about the doctrine of the Trinity. They didn't yet understand that Yahweh was three in one, but they knew that Yahweh alone was their Savior. That's what Psalm 118 celebrates. Yahweh is thanked. Yahweh is revered because of His steadfast love. Because He stood beside His suffering servant and He gave that servant help when He needed it. The servant of God, we read there, was surrounded and attacked, but Yahweh intervened, verse, verse 13 and 14. He overturned and He defeated them. There's a climax in verse 14. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Well, when you understand that Jesus is Yahweh, you could translate that, so to speak, with New Testament terms and say it this way, Joshua. Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, is my strength and my song. Jesus has become my salvation. Jesus, brothers and sisters, has always been the Savior of the world, the only hope for mankind. He wasn't always known by that name. In the Old Testament, He was known by the name Yahweh. But whether he was called God, Psalm 45 calls him God, or whether he was called Yahweh, or now in the New Testament, Yahweh saves Jesus, this Jesus is the single, singular source of salvation. He's the one sent by the Father to defeat our greatest enemy, Satan and sin. And since Jesus is the only one to ever have defeated sin, He's the only possible Savior. He's the only possible cornerstone for His church. Well, that's what question 30 is driving at. Jesus has no partner in salvation. Of course, God the Father and God the Spirit were with him and are were and are involved in that unique mysterious manner of the trinity but it was god the son who took upon himself true human nature and it was god the son who died on the cross and who rose from the dead yahweh alone saves and he brought it about in human flesh he brought it about in the person of jesus christ and that's why we say in jesus alone my hope is found. That is the Christian confession in a nutshell. In Jesus alone, my hope, my salvation is found. Well, when you say that, when you confess that, you are instantly excluding everything and everyone else, aren't you? We are excluding also all world religions all other belief systems. And it's going to get harder. We might as well be real about that. It's going to get harder to make this confession in Canada, this pluralistic society we live in. But the Bible is as clear as a bell in Acts 4, verse 12, which we read. Peter says, speaking of Jesus, and there is salvation in no one else. And no one else. There's no salvation anywhere else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other Savior. Canadians are taught everywhere 
that all religions are equally valid, equally true, equally lead to some sort of paradise. Well, God is saying to us, that is a lie. What most Canadians believe is a lie. So we're swimming upstream on this one, as on many things. Sikhism, for example, Sikhism teaches followers to follow the light within, within themselves. Until at last, the light within, they say, merges with the supreme light. Well, this is just not true. There is no light within man because we know man is depraved. Sin lies in man. Darkness lies in man. That's what the Scriptures say. So Sikhism is not true. And Jesus is totally left out of the picture in their religion. Buddhism teaches that concentration and, and meditation will lead a person to eventually fall into the paradise called nirvana. Hinduism teaches something similar. Islam, for its part, tells their people to follow Muhammad and to worship Allah. They respect Jesus as a prophet and a teacher, but nothing more. But brothers and sisters, one by one, all of these are dead end streets. The devil has been busy throughout history making up, having humans make up a variety of religions in order to distract them and to lead them away from the only Savior, Jesus. And you know, many Christians are tempted to give in to this lie. But, says the Bible, only those who cling to Jesus as the exclusive Savior, only those who believe that in Jesus alone is salvation found will actually find their salvation. We need to stand firm in the faith. We need to invite others to join us, but never doubt that Jesus and Jesus alone is the Savior. Answer 30 actually has in mind the errors of Roman Catholic theology. It mentions saints praying to saints. You probably know that the Roman Catholic Church teaches their people to pray to saints, to pray to Mary, to let them, those saints, assist you with intercessory prayers. Now, Rome doesn't say it in so many words, but their actions are showing by that teaching that it's not quite enough to pray to Jesus. There's something insufficient about Jesus' work. Some additional help is needed from these holy believers of long ago. But if you take the Bible at its word, if you believe that Jesus is the complete and the total and sufficient mediator between man and God, then your prayers and veneration and invocations will all be addressed to Him and through Him to the Father. You don't involve the saints. Scripture never, never anywhere tells us to pray to saints or to Mary. You leave them out. But we address all our hope, all our prayers, all our dependency is addressed to Jesus or through Him to the Father, then we are exclusively trusting in Christ Jesus. Now, most of us, I imagine, won't be strongly tempted to pray to saints or to Mary. But is it possible that we commit the same mistake, the mistake that Answer 30 is talking about where we boast of knowing Jesus in words, but by our deeds, we actually end up denying Jesus. 
This is a constant threat for any believer of any age because it's a human instinct within us since the fall into sin to want to do something for ourselves. Our sinful pride does not like the idea that we, we come to, to the Lord Jesus naked, spiritually naked, without anything to add to His work. And so, because we don't like that, there's always part of us that goes looking around for any scrap of spiritual clothing that we can put on ourselves to help us stand acceptably in the eyes of God. Very much like our first parents, Adam and Eve, grabbed fig leaves to cover themselves when they heard the sound of God approaching in the garden. They, they knew they were naked and they were ashamed and they started to cover up their shame. They tried. We might do that in some fashion. We might take our, the family we've been given the family we've raised, our nice godly family, and hold that up to God and say, look at, our, look at our family. Or we might take our track record of faithful church attendance or regular giving or, or helping others, or we might point to our involvement in Bible studies or small groups or prayer groups and say something like, see, Lord, I, 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 know, I know none of this is perfect, but it is something, isn't it, Lord? I'm an active church member. I'm alive in the faith. I do good for other people. This helps to tip the scales in my favor, doesn't it? Just, just a little. Well, the answer of Scripture is no. Of course, all of those things I mentioned are valuable ways of serving the Lord, and some of them are directly commanded of us, so we should be busy with things like that. And absolutely, God is pleased with us when we do them out of true faith. But, and here's the rub, not one of those things, not one of those things can ever count toward our salvation. Those things can never add to what Jesus has done with His sinless life, His perfect death, His incredible resurrection from the dead. None of the things that we do can add to that to fill out our acceptance in, in God's eyes. To our egos, that sounds like bad news, like a blow, but in truth it's good news because none of those things we thought were worthy are in fact worthy in the eyes of God because none of those things thought were so good are pure. Even our best efforts have a taint of sin about them, and if we were to lay them before God in their own merit, they would be rejected because of that sin. There's only one who can lay His work before God in His own merit and be completely accepted. That's the Lord Jesus. That's the gospel message, beloved, that's the best news. It's His life, His obedience, His work, which are completely pure in God's sight. And He lays them on our account so that God the Father sees us through the work of Jesus. We get the credit for what Jesus did. Jesus is the complete Savior. And we find in Him alone everything necessary to be saved. 
That's the point of this cornerstone image in Psalm 118 that uh, Peter quotes in Acts 4. The stone that the builders had rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, Yahweh's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In the context of the psalm, the poet, we don't know who he is for sure, but he seems to be a king, quite likely King David. He wrote many of the psalms. This king then is surrounded by enemies. These enemies include people within Israel, but also foreign nations. And these enemies, they treated the poet like an outcast, like he was nothing. The, the poet then is the stone the builders rejected. The builders would have been the leaders around the king. You can think of how David's brothers in his earlier in his life were jealous of him and refused to support him in his anointed status. You, th you can think of how Saul refused to acknowledge David as, as one who loved him and he turned on David and hunted David. You can think of how David's own son Absalom later rejected David and tried to kill him. Yet in the end, God preserved David's life and caused him to become Israel's king and even made out of David the, the beginning of an everlasting dynasty out of which would come the Messiah. So David was the stone the builders rejected. But God took that stone and put him in power in, in, in Zion and made something out of him, built the future on, on David. Well, says Peter in Acts 4, what happened to David was a foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus. This Jesus, says Peter, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter is speaking to the Jewish leaders, to the office bearers of the church. They were the builders then, referred to in Psalm 118, fulfilled in their rejection of Jesus. And Jesus is the great cornerstone. And that's a special stone. It's unique. The builders of a house... Back in those days, they would search long, they would search hard to find just the right stone for the corner, the right size, the right shape, had to be good and square, strong and solid, and they would lay that stone at the, stone at the corner. It was the starting point for the, for the building. That one stone would be used to set the walls in a, in a straight line and make sure that they were plumb, and that the building was square. A building might have a number of corners, but there was only one corner stone. And so it is in God's house. There is one foundation and one cornerstone, Jesus Christ. As Paul writes elsewhere, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. We sang it last week. Being baptized into the name of the Son, confessing Jesus as Lord, means that Jesus and Jesus alone, exclusively, is our 
salvation. He's our cornerstone. Firm, unshakable. Yahweh in the flesh. Jesus is your comforter. He is your Savior. He is your all in all. Amen.